What is your practice, Mirvat, in these patients for the vast majority? The vast majority, I would stage, to be honest, I won't do it in the index procedure. I think, you know, it gives you time to kind of reassess the patient as a whole. Their clinical status, you know, in terms of fluid status and so on, get an echocardiogram and have a conversation with the patient about what comes next in terms of dual antiplatelet therapy and risk modification and so on. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to episode 99 of Parallax. Um, and, um, you know, this is an episode which um, is um, being recorded just at the conclusion of a very important annual cardiovascular uh, meeting or scientific sessions um, for the cardiology community. Um, you know, the European Study of Cardiology Congress is uh, an extremely well-attended Congress, um, happens about this time each year, and some incredible science is presented across a spectrum of um, all subspecialties within cardiology, whether, you know, it's cardiovascular imaging, advanced heart failure, um, cardiac electrophysiology, or interventional cardiology. And for the 99th episode, which is, um, you know, being recorded at the helm of our centennial episode, um, episode 100, um, with uh, Professor Valentin Fuster, I am extremely delighted and honored um, to have amongst us uh, Dr. Mirvat Alasnag. And, you know, uh, that name needs no introduction, you know, whether it's uh, cardiology or interventional cardiology, she's... Uh, an international superstar um, as um, an interventional cardiologist in Saudi Arabia, cardiac catheterization laboratory director at her institution, and um, you know is uh, among the board of trust trustees at Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions, and um, is um, part of the American College of Cardiology's Interventional Leadership Council. So you know, incredible roles and uh, just an incredible role model for. Um, you know, all of us within the interventional cardiology community, um, you know, I, I've told her, you know, off the record that she's omnipresent, um, which is a great compliment because she's um, at the meetings and, uh, you know, in cases and, you know, she does such a phenomenal job in explaining and presenting the latest science and data. Um, so with that introduction, Mirvat, welcome on the show and thank you so much for doing this for us at, uh, at such a short notice. Ankur, thank you for having me in this wonderful introduction. Um, you really do humble me. And um, congratulations on your um, podcasts. They're just very um, consumable. And, and you know, we, we, we all listen to them to refresh our memories of trials and so on and to dissect what's coming up. So, yeah, thank you for doing this for our community as well. Oh, no, thank you. You know, the pleasure is all mine. I get um, to spend um, some quality time with, uh, you know, guests like yourself. Um, so, you know, Mirwat, uh, getting um, into the meat of the topic, which is uh, an ESC 2023 wrap up. And I specifically wanted to request, uh, you know, your participation for this episode, because this ESC, particularly in comparison with some of the previous ESCs, I've, I've felt, uh, you know, maybe I'm biased, but I felt that was um, presented some uh, great science from from our perspective, you know, the perspective of an interventional cardiologist. And so we'll just uh, jump right in 
uh, and begin um, with you know you taking us through some of the important trials uh, you felt were you know practice informing or practice changing for our community. Absolutely, thank you. So there were some very impactful trials that were presented. Um, specifically in two areas. One was complete revascularization and the other one was in the space of intracoronary imaging. And I do think they will eventually change the guidelines. So if we go ahead and start with the trials that covered um, revascularization, complete revascularization, there were two um, trials. One was the FIRE trial and one was the Multistars AMI. The FIRE trial, what's interesting about it is it really enrolled patients over the age of 75 who are often underrepresented in clinical trials, including and specifically in the setting of STEMIs and acute coronary syndrome. So this actually showed us that not only can we be doing PCIs in the elderly population, but we can also conduct trials safely in them. The FIRE trial really looked at patients who were over the age of 75, who had an ST elevation MI or a non-ST elevation MI, and had successful percutaneous revascularization of the culprit lesion, in the setting of multi-vessel disease, where there was at least another non-culprit coronary artery involved. So these patients were then, after the successful revascularization of the culprit, randomized into complete revascularization that is physiology-guided or PCI of the, non, uh, um, of the culprit-only vessel. So the patients in the culprit-only revascularization group did not undergo any physiologic assessment at all, and the primary outcome was a composite of death, MI, stroke, and ischemia-driven coronary revascularization within one year of randomization. And then the secondary outcome was a one-year composite of cardiovascular death and MI and the individual components of that. They ended up enrolling over 1,445 patients from 34 sites. The median age was actually 80 years and women were about 36.5%. Um, the primary outcome occurred in 15.7% of those who had physiology-guided complete revascularization and 21% of the culprit only. Um, NNT was about 19 in this population. Um, so with the exception of stroke, each component of the primary outcome was lower in the physiology-guided complete revascularization, including um, death. So... I think the only takeaway message is complete revascularization is important. Physiology-guided revascularization um, is useful. We can do it in the elderly. Um, probably my only take other additional take-home from this is that, you know, we don't look at age as a number. These were, when you look at the um, demographics of the population involved, they were actually robust patients. And so other factors that impact outcome in this population besides age is, of course, comorbidities and frailty, which is not directly related to age. The other trial is the Multistars AMI trial, which really looked at immediate complete revascularization at the time of the primary PCI compared with a more staged procedure. So patients were actually randomized to one, on a one-to-one -one basis to immediate or staged within 19 to 45 days um, of successful PCI of the culprit vessel. And the primary endpoint was all-cause death, non-fatal MI, stroke, and unplanned ischemia-driven revascularization or hospitalization for heart failure after one year of randomization. They ended up enrolling about 840 patients from 37 different sites in Europe. And the primary endpoint in the immediate revascularization was 8.5%, and it was 16.3% in the staged uh, group. So it met the non-inferiority. It was a non-inferiority design and it met.
that, the non-inferiority um, component of that. In terms of non-fatal myocardial infarctions, it occurred in 2% of the immediate group and 5.3% of the stage group with a 64% relative risk reduction. Um, and likewise, when we look at ischemia-driven revascularization, it was 4.1 versus 9.3% with a 58% relative risk reduction. So really, the rate of all-cause death, stroke, and hospitalization for heart failure did not differ between the two groups. Um, and the conclusion here is that immediate PCI is non-inferior to stage PCI in the setting of, of ST elevation myocardial infarction and multivessel disease. Um, perhaps the only other message that I would say here is there, again, other factors. It's a non-inferiority design, but other factors um, come into play in practice, meaning um, how far is this patient? What is their renal function? Uh, will they tolerate more contrast load? How complex is the re complete revascularization of the other vessels and so on? Maybe even what time of day it is. Um, so those were the the two most important in terms of revascularization. And I think maybe we can, you know, for the sake of time, dive into the um, trials that actually looked into intracoronary imaging. What do you think? Um, yes, Mirva, you know, this is um, a really uh, succinct summary of two really important trials which were presented at the meeting. Um, I have to really congratulate the investigators for FIRE, right? One, one is to randomize a demographic, like you mentioned, um, in the age group that they did. Uh, I mean, a median age of 80 is excellent um, in the AMI population, in the acute myocardial infarction population. So, you know, that um, has been a data-free zone for uh, for quite some time. And, you know, I'm glad that uh, they could conduct a physiology-guided revascularization trial uh, in that patient population. And it turns out that it was, uh, you know, significant. I mean, number needed to treat of 19 is is just, uh, is is impressionable, you know, to say the least. Um, and also, you know, I think um, congratulations are in order also because of the percentage of women uh, in that demographic that were recruited, you know, you, you said 36%. So, you know, really good, good job. Um, you know, just fantastic job, you know, from the investigators there. Um, and, you know, just to put this uh, in perspective uh, from a clinical uh, practice point of view, you know, both FIRE and Multistars AMI, how do you treat these patients? You know, I think at the end of the day, we try to garner as much information we can from these randomized clinical trials and then sort of, you know, transmute that information to the patient, the individual patient at the bedside. And, you know, you did bring up... Um, individualization with regard to complexity of coronary anatomy, you know, comorbidities, uh, time of day, uh, contrast use. Um, what, what is your practice, Mirvat, in these patients for the vast majority? The vast majority, I would state, to be honest, I won't do it in the index procedure. I think, um, you know, it gives you time to kind of reassess the patient as a whole. Um, their clinical status, you know, in terms of fluid status and so on, get an echocardiogram and have a conversation with the patient about what comes next in terms of dual antiplatelet therapy and risk modification and so on. Um, so that, generally speaking, that is what I would do. I would resort to immediate if the patient has difficult access, for example, um, and so on. Yeah. And, you know, I know we uh, aren't specifically t talking about DAPT strategies, uh, you know, because, you know, we were just talking about complete revascularization. But when it comes to uh, dual antiplatelet therapy strategies, duration of DAPT, 
in these patients, you know, now that we're talking about the elderly patient population and, you know, the comorbidity not infrequently also includes atrial fibrillation. Is it your practice to, um, to stop the aspirin from the very beginning and just be, have them be on dual antithrombotic therapy? You know, for example, a P2Y12 and a DOAC, um, or do you do triple therapy for at least a month and then transition them to dual antithrombotic therapy? That's one. Uh, and I, uh, you know, and that was sort of like the second segment of the question. The first segment being, what typical duration are you comfortable with in these patients in, in the setting of an acute coronary syndrome? You know, the European guidelines would recommend for somebody with an ACS, the default is one year. But then we have to evaluate the patients longitudinally and, and be, you know, see if they develop a bleeding risk or an ischemic risk and tailor the, the, rec the um, antiplatelet duration accordingly. So there's, um, you know, a, a more abbreviated if they're high bleeding risk and a more extended if they're at high ischemic risk. And um, I've avoided now going with triple therapy. I do it while they're in hospital, sort of like with the master DAPT trial and so on. And then I would send them home on a single antiplatelet with an antithrombotic um, therapy. And, and on that note, there's a trial that was presented at ESC called the um, Optic Biorisk trial, which was very interesting because it actually uh, tapped into an area that we don't, which is specifically what you're talking about right now, that we don't really have many studies to guide us, which is a lot of the time, the risk factors that render an individual high risk for ischemic events also render the same individuals at high bleeding risk, age, for example renders an individual high risk for both renal dysfunction and so on. So what they did is they took individuals, this was a Chinese um, randomized trial that took patients who were on dual antiplatelet therapy after successful complete revascularization and after being event-free for at least six months. Then they randomized them to single antiplatelet with a P2Y12 inhibitor, clopidogrel, or dual antiplatelet therapy they had a run-in period of aspirin for approximately three months just to make sure there's no fall-off. Um, and then they actually saw that the patients who had monotherapy had lower bleeding risk, which was the primary endpoint, PARC 2, 3, and 5. But they also had lower ischemic events, major adverse cardiovascular and cerebrovascular events, which was the secondary endpoint. Now, this was very interesting that the monotherapy, they had lower ischemic events as well. And, um, you know, the investigators, when they were questioned, they said that maybe some of the remedial measures and medications that the patients were given um, when they had bleeding events on dual antiplatelet rendered them higher risk of ischemic events. So at least that was an interesting trial. I thought I'd just plug in. <laughs> yeah, no, extremely relevant. You know, thanks for bringing it up. Um, you know, I think w w what has uh, slowly happened in my practice, at least, is in, in patients with chronic coronary syndrome. You know, which is stable coronary disease patients beyond six months of dual antiplatelet therapy, at least in a non-ACS setting, a non-acute coronary syndrome setting. I've become very comfortable in in just uh, continuing clopidogrel monotherapy and actually stopping aspirin, because the more we learn and the more data we're garnering around aspirin, it just feels that um, you know there are more bleeding events compared with um, you know lack of benefit when it comes to you know ischemic events. So, you know, just a great um, addition to our discussion there. And, you know, thanks to our expertise for, for bringing that up for our audience, um, which I think is a, a great segue for us to now talk about 
all the imaging trials and the imaging data that were presented, um, you know, also a meta-analysis, which was published, uh, you know, in a very timely fashion, uh, sort of accruing all these uh, individual patient level data together. Um, so why don't you talk to us about the, the, the imaging trials? You know, we all want, you know, have been advocating use of imaging and we want uh, more uptake of imaging in order to optimize our PCIs and you know, get cabbage-like results. So the one trial that we were looking out for was the Illumian 4, and this caused quite a ripple um, at the Congress. So the Illumian 4 um, is comes off the um, Illumian 3 trial, which really looked at angiography-guided PCI versus OCT-guided PCI, and they note that OCT guidance improved procedural success. There was better stent expansion, less malapposition, and major dissections. But we don't know if that translates into clinical events. And that's what Illumian 4 was designed to answer. It was a one-to-one randomization. They took high-risk patients, and they defined high risk as not just the the anatomy of the, the lesion, you know, CTO, long lesions, calcified, bifurcations, et cetera, but also the patient if they were diabetic on treatment and so on. So they took these patients who were high risk and they randomized them to OCT guidance alone uh, or angiography alone um, PCI. And the primary endpoint, it was powered for, for imaging with, um, you know, minimum stent area assessed by OCT. And they looked at a superiority design there. And primary clinical endpoint, again, it was powered to um, answer that question. They looked at target vessel failure defined as cardiac death, target vessel MI, and ischemia-driven target vascular uh, target vessel revascularization, superiority design again. The safety endpoint was stent thrombosis, but it wasn't powered for that. Ultimately, they ended up enrolling uh, 2,487 patients, randomized into 1,200 plus in the OCT arm and 1,200 plus in the angio arm, and followed them up for two years. Now, the primary imaging endpoint was achieved where the minimum stent area was bigger in the OCT-guided, 5.72 compared with 5.36. The primary clinical endpoint, which it was powered for, was not met. So target vessel failure was 7.4% in the OCT arm and angio was 8.2%. P-value was only 0.45. So for all the components of uh, target vessel failure, cardiac death, target vessel MI, ischemia-driven target vessel revascularization. Although for cardiac death and target vessel MI, the events were numerically lower in the OCT arm compared with the angio arm, but it didn't reach statistical significance. So there was a lot of discussion here why this happened. The investigators did note, and they did do a comparative analysis before and after uh, COVID, showing that after COVID, for whatever reason, Patients did not want to come to the hospitals for revascularization and stayed with um, optimal medical therapy. Um, you know, nonetheless, I think the message here is um, imaging, intracoronary imaging does reduce something very clinically relevant, but perhaps not statistically relevant, like cardiac death and target vessel MI. And, um, you know, again, another clinically relevant uh, item is the um, stent thrombosis. But other imaging trials were actually very um, strongly positive. One was the October trial. So this what the premise for the October trial was that we do know from the e-Ultimaster registry and the Syntax trial that bifurcations have higher uh, mortalities and have higher major adverse events. So the October trial was designed to look at bifurcations and complex lesions specifically and looking at um, clinical outcomes compared with standard practice where the PCI was done with angiography guidance alone. The primary endpoint was major adverse cardiovascular events, that which was a composite of cardiac death, 
target lesion myocardial infarction and ischemia-driven um, TLR at two years. And the secondary endpoints were all cause mortality, cardiac death, um, you know, the individual components. They ended up enrolling over 1,200 patients from 38 different centers in Europe, um, 600 to the OCT arm and 600 in the angioadone uh, arm. And at two years, the major adverse cardiovascular events in the OCT was 10.1% and angio was 14.1% with a relative risk reduction of 30%. So differences in the secondary clinical endpoints um, were numerically lower for all endpoints, but they didn't reach statistical significance um, with um, OCT. So really, there was no apparent difference in the procedural safety. The volume of contrast and procedure time were slightly increased with the OCT arm compared with the angio, um, but it really didn't make a difference. Um, so overall, they, you know, the conclusion here is that for complex PCIs and bifurcations, OCT did reduce hard endpoints um, and major adverse cardiovascular events. These two trials compared OCT to angio alone. Now, there was another interesting trial that came from um, South Korea, and this looked at, it was an investigator-initiated tri prospective trial, um, pragmatic design that really wanted to look at IBIS compared with OCT. They took 2,008 patients, randomized them one-to-one -to, -one to OCT guided or IVIS guided. And the average age of the participants was about 64. Um, women were only 21%. Um, overall, 33% were diabetic. Um, the majority were actually chronic coronary syndrome, 76% compared with 23% in the ACS arm. And the primary endpoint, again, was a composite of death um, from cardiac causes, target vessel MI, ischemia-driven TVR at one year powered for non inferiority. And here um, they were comparable. So the end primary endpoint occurred in 2.5% of those who underwent PCI guided by OCT and 3.1% of those who underwent PCI guided by IVIS. And regarding the safety endpoints, the incidence of contrast-induced nephropathy was similar in both groups, 1.4 versus 1.5 respectively. So patients undergoing PCI with OCT was non-inferior non to IVIS um, when it comes to, the, to um, death from cardiac cause, target vessel MI, or ischemia-driven um, target vessel revascularization at 12 months after the index procedure. So that was reassuring. But then as you mentioned, the um, meta-analysis, it was a network meta-analysis meta that was presented by Greg Stone, and it really helped bring the whole field of intracoronary imaging into perspective. So what they did here is that um, they looked at, they analyzed the overall impact of intravascular imaging, be it with IVIS or OCT in improving outcomes compared with angiography alone. They looked at IVIS versus angiography, OCT versus angiography, and then IVIS versus OCT. They selected 20 randomized trials and included over 12,000 patients, about 12,428 to be specific, who had both chronic coronary syndrome and acute coronary syndrome. They ended up with 7,000 plus patients allocated to the intravascular imaging group, and 5,390 in the angio-guided group alone. And then they followed them up and saw six months and five-year outcomes in these patients. So in terms of intravascular imaging compared with angiography, the results were consistent where the primary composite outcome of target lesion failure was by 31% compared with angiography, was, was lower in the imaging guidance compared with um, angiography. And when it comes to the um, secondary outcomes, intravascular um, PC, guided PCI resulted in reductions in cardiac death by 46%, um, 
target vessel MI by 20%, TVR by 29%. So there's and stent thrombosis by 52% compared with angiography guidance. And then when they looked at OCT guided and IVIS guided compared individually against angiography and each other, the analysis did not actually at that time include the Octavus. It was done before the Octavus. Interestingly, Davide Capodano um, did a commentary where he actually plugged in the Octavus and again did not find any comparative difference. So when you looked at any imaging or IVIS alone or OCT alone compared with angiography, it did they fared much better in terms of hard endpoints. And when you looked at IVUS versus OCT, there really was no difference even when they plugged in the Octavus trial. So really, and the results have been very consistent when you look at all modalities. So really, this, this network analysis was very important because putting it in perspective, most certainly there is a reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events, including cardiac death, when any form of imaging is noted. What I take from that is that get familiar with an imaging modality. So if you're good at IVIS, a good IVIS is better than a bad OCT. If you're good at OCT, a good OCT is better than an IVIS. Um, and, and interestingly, the acute coronary syndrome guidelines were elaborated during ESC 2023. And they actually did comment on intracoronary imaging, where for patients who had an identifiable culprit, the recommendation that they gave was 2A to use any form of imaging, IVUS or OCT. But in those in whom the culprit was not, was ambiguous, they recommended, um, they preferred OCT in the guidelines and they gave it, assigned it a class 2B recommendation. Um, so I think perhaps the guidelines may eventually change as well based on the October trial, where at least for complex and bifurcations, um, they are going to make a stronger recommendation to use intracoronary imaging. So interestingly, how do you use um, Alcor? Yeah, so, um, well, you know, I was going to say thank you for, um, again, so um, eloquently describing those, um, you know, complex um, studies and, and trials. And um, I was... Um, you know, really uh, interested to to read the meta meta analyses and you know reason why I even brought this up because you know our group had done um, a similar meta analysis looking at fourteen randomized clinical trials and comparing um, IVUS or OCT with angiography. So IVUS versus angiography and OCT versus angiography and IVUS versus OCT. Um, you know, in relation to angiography, it was a network meta analysis which was you know actually published uh, last year in in JSky um, and showed very similar results, uh, you know, compared with some of uh, the individual level meta-analyses, uh, which was published uh, during the meeting. Now, you know, granted ours was a study level and not an individual patient level, but I was just extremely fascinated to see that the conclusions that were drawn from both these networks were actually congr absolutely congruent and very similar. Um, you know, because the, the study which we had published last year uh, showed that um, the odds of um, major adverse cardiac events or cardiovascular mortality or even TVR were similar between the two imaging modalities, but were significantly lower if, you know, compared with angiography alone. Uh, to answer your question, Mirwat, uh, you know, I've, I'm, I'm an IVIS user and I've, um, over the years, graduated to using 
you know, intracoronary imaging in upwards of 75% of my PCIs. Um, so I'm very comfortable with it. Uh, if there is even an iota of doubt uh, with regard to, you know, stent acquisition, um, I'm very quick uh, to using IVIS. I use it um, in elective PCI cases in, involving, you know, proximal vessels because that's where, uh, you know, you may size them differently. Um, I certainly use them uh, in acute coronary syndromes, particularly with RCAs, because RCAs can, you know, they can fool you and trick you, uh, you know, in my own experience. Um, so um, I find IVIS always very telling to me each time I use it uh, in the setting of an acute coronary syndrome involving the RCA. Um, you know, without a doubt, I use both physiology as well as imaging when I have to make a determination of um, uh, the severity of left main disease, you know, because that obviously has important implications for the patient. Uh, or, you know, in case of left main stenting, again, um, you know, uh, um, looking at the polygon of confluence, as they call it, the five, six, seven, eight rule, you know, I mean, IVIS is so crucial. Uh, you know, you certainly brought up that study, which looked at the superiority of imaging uh, in uh, bifurcation cases. Um, so, you know, that is that is uh, the typical pattern of my practice. How about how about yours? Um, how do you use imaging in your practice? So, you know, I started with IVIS and um, I'm picking up OCT more um, lately. And I think the more I'm using OCT, it's just clearer. Um, the only thing is you need, you know, contrast and so on. And IBIS just seems like in the middle of the night and any other time, just a very plug and play kind of device. Um, so honestly, like you, the more you use it, the more you appreciate what you learn when you're looking at an artery well beyond what your naked eye sees on angiography. Um, and it really does help with decision-making. We have a huge population of diabetes. And so a lot of them have diffuse vessels and it's vessel disease and it's very difficult to identify landing zones and and so on. So a lot of the times the imaging does help us at least find something reasonable and you know vessel may look very thready and small but when you do the IVIS or the imaging you appreciate that it's actually a bigger LED or a bigger RCA imagine. So um yeah, absolutely. I think there's more to see with the imaging. Yes, I, I agree with you. I think um, also one more comment I'd like to make here, you know, uh, that you brought up um, a specific uh, use of imaging in, in my practice. And, you know, the, the one other place where I absolutely would use it um, is, um, you know, to ascertain causes of stent failure. So, you know, patients with instant restenosis whether that instant restenosis occurred because of new atherosclerosis or stent malapposition or undersizing, or if there was a you know stent fracture, if there was a distal um, edge dissection, you can't come up with these diagnoses and you can't come up with the etiology if you don't image. Would you agree? Oh yes, I I agree with you completely. And um, you know sometimes when you're struggling to understand why you don't have some such great flow. It, it eliminates the guesswork. You know, is it no reflow? Is there a flap, a dissection flap that's really, uh, you know, um, impacting flow? So it just, you put the catheter in there and it just helps you see more and helps you decide what your next step is really. So thank you for bringing that up. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I completely agree with you, you know, particularly in uh, even in the scenarios of, like you mentioned, you know, acute vessel closure, which happens not infrequently in, in acute coronary syndromes, particularly with, you know, large thrombotic burden. Um, you know, it just helps you to ascertain, you know, whether you, you appropriately covered uh, the lesion, uh, you know, whether there was intramural hematoma or, you know, distal vessel dissection or dissection following PTCA. I mean, it just gives you a plethora of information you would otherwise miss. And like you said, just eliminates the guesswork, um, which is very relieving, you know, in the setting of an acute coronary syndrome and an unstable patient on the table. Um, Amirwa, this has been such a great, um, you know, discussion with you as, as always is. And thank you for, you know, coming back um, to uh, discuss these important trials with us on, on parallax. Um, a little tangential topic here. Uh, how was uh, being in Amsterdam uh, with all the colleagues? I mean, I just uh, was following your Twitter slash X feed and, and also your LinkedIn feed, and you just seemed busy. Uh, you were, you know, up and out and about, and you know, meeting and collaborating as you usually do. How how was it uh, to be there? Um, you know, Amsterdam. The weather was just very pleasant, and um, it's just a really nice city. Unfortunately, we got very busy at the meeting, and it was just so wonderful to see everybody and just do the networking again with colleagues, discuss and debate these trials and what we think of them and how they'll impact guidelines and practice. Um, so it really was nice, but. The other thing that's nice about these general meetings, um, you know, general cardiology meetings, is that you get to network with colleagues outside your specialty. So the imagers and the heart failure specialists and so on, and you you end up feeling more of a better, well-rounded clinician and not just, you know, a cath lab junkie. And that's what I enjoy about it. Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up, uh, which, um, you know, um, I know that the focus of this uh conversation here today was the interventional trials, um, you know, with, with regard to all the data which were presented, but um, any particular trial from heart failure um, that's stood out for you or from imaging actually that's stood out for you at ESC? Again, I mean, the, the guidelines, the new guidelines on cardiomyopathy that, that came out, which were very interesting, um, they did upgrade the use of cardiac MRI, which is going to be interesting in how we end up, um, you know, delivering that in real practice because there are not as many MRI specialists and um, not as many machines available for, for that. Um, but the other one was the step HF, which was also very good. And, um, you know, it looked at patients who have heart failure, but don't necessarily have to have an, an event. And those patients qualify for treatment um, irrespective of their hemoglobin A1C, or in other words, diabetes control, and um, irrespective of their ejection fraction. So I really like that trial as well, and I do think that will be very impactful on on practice. Absolutely. Well, you know, Mirva, thanks again for um, being with us, and uh, thank you for all your knowledge and and wisdom, and um, you know, sharing worlds of clinical practice with our listenership. Any closing remarks for Parallax? You're actually um, at the helm of the 100th episode, like I said, and you know we'll be broadcasting this um, soon. And then um, you'll be followed by, you know, Professor Valentin Fuster. What do you What do you have to say about that? Really excited um, to hear the 100th um, episode of Parallax. And, and again, Ankur, uh, congratulations! You've really taken the whole spectrum of cardiology and you encapsulate it and the conversations are light and meaningful and 
you know, we can access them anytime when we're driving in our cars, when we're sitting in the cath lab waiting for our patients to be loaded. And just, um, I, I really congratulate you. You've, you've filled in a gap, an important need for us um, as cardiologists and um, very exciting work that you're doing. So please keep doing the good work that you do. Oh, no, thank you. That certainly means a lot to me from a colleague like yourself. And, you know, thanks again for your time. And um, I, I wish to see you around, uh, you know, hopefully soon at uh, either TCT or AHA. I'm sure you'll be, you'll be here, or I hope that you'll be here. Well, hoping. Fingers crossed. Thank you, Anchor. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favourite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.